you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can hear the Word of God, but also read along as well. It has double the impact that way. And please, if you don't own a Bible, consider that Bible to be a gift from the Lord to you today and take it home and make a good friend of it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. And therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all of the people according to the law of Moses, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things were purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified With these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is, the sacrifices of bulls and calves and goats. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, the model of the tabernacle, which are copies of the true, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we just pinch ourselves for the privilege of being able to turn to it, this wonderful revelation of yourself and of Jesus And, Lord, nothing else in the whole wide world, nothing else in life compares to that vision of you and what happens in our lives when we see you clearly. And there's no clearer place to see you than in your scriptures as they're being ministered by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. And we pray for that ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word and exalting you and increasing our understanding and knowledge, and thus our worship of you as well. And so we pray for that dynamic that your Holy Spirit alone brings, Lord, to each one of our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We come to a passage of Scripture, and it isn't just this particular section in the book of Hebrews, but I As you read through the book of Hebrews, there's this sense that we're at once studying 
of the Pentateuch or the Old Testament on Sunday nights, and in the middle of it we've got a mix-in of a Good Friday service and then the Lord's Supper and all of these dynamics all happening at once. And for many of us, all of this is fairly familiar territory, but for many others of us in the room, this is all entirely new and wonderfully new and powerful, though powerful for all of us. In verses 16 and 17, the writer communicates that in the same way the writer of a will must die in order for his wealth to be fully distributed, so too, too Jesus had to die in order to fully pass on his riches to us. And Jesus' death has allowed the fullness of his spiritual wealth to be distributed to us, namely, or most significantly, as is listed in verse 22, the remission or the forgiveness of sins. The Bible teaches that God, Jesus, desires for each of us to be forgiven of our sins, each of us to be saved and have everlasting life. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If God had his will, his sole will, not a single person would perish because of their sin. But there are two wills that are involved in whether a person gets saved or not. There is God's will and there is our individual will, and He will never violate our will. We have a freedom to choose to accept Christ and receive everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins or to reject. But no one will ever on any given day or one day point to God and say, God, why didn't you or how come or you're to blame because... I end up on the wrong side of things in eternity. He's made His will known. He he is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God the Father has put the blood of His very Son between us and the judgment that we deserve. The Apostle uh, uh, Paul put it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians, speaking of how Jesus had to die in order to provide salvation and forgiveness of sins to us. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, thinking of it, speaking of his eternal glory, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in order for us to obtain the inheritance, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins that Christ has for each of us, it requires two things. It required his death, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. And then second, it requires that we accept the terms of the will for the receiving of that salvation, for the receiving of that forgiveness of sins. And of course, that is through faith in Jesus alone. For by grace you are saved. Grace is a free word. It's a gift word. It's a give word. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And this morning I'd like to make that final phrase of verse 22 the focus of our attention. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And literally it reads, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness 
of sin, because that's what it's talking about here, is the remission or the forgiveness of sins. It is important to notice how often the word blood is used in verses 16 through 24. The word blood is repeated no less than six times. And the Holy Spirit does it without any apology, without any concern for how horrified anybody's going to get over the, over the issue of blood. It, the word blood is used in verse 18, in verse 19, in verse 20, in verse 21, twice in verse 22. And as you read through the passage, it's blood, 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 over and over again. It dominates the passage, and it is intended to dominate the passage. I think it's very important to realize what blood signified uh, under the old covenant sacrifices and what the blood represented. The blood represented the life of the animal that was being sacrificed. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, God's law declared, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, blood represents life. Life is found in, in the blood. And so when we speak of the blood of Jesus or the blood of Christ in our worship songs or in a Bible study or in our personal conversation, we are talking about His life laid down for us, His life given for us. It is also important to understand the place of blood in the Old Covenant uh, of the Law of Moses as it related to sin. First, the the writer reminds us that the first covenant was dedicated with blood, the blood of animal sacrifice. And he brings that out in some detail there in verses 18 through 21. And as that law was given to Moses and, and the books of the law and all, it was sanctified through the offering of sacrifice, the blood being sprinkled upon the law and also the furnishings of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself. I think as it, it, we also think about the sin offering in the Old Covenant and the sequence of the sin offering. And all of this is very much in the mind of the writer of the book of Hebrews as he speaks of Jesus. In the sin offering of the Old Testament, the sequence is laid out in Leviticus chapter 4 where an individual who was guilty of sin would bring a lamb without blemish to the priest. He would then, before the priest and the holiness of the area of the tabernacle, he would lay his hands on the head of that innocent lamb. And it was a picture of substitution, a picture of the transference of his sin, the sin of the guilty, onto an innocent sacrifice. And as that man would bring that lamb, he would lay his hands on the head of that lamb. There was, everybody knew that that lamb was going to die in his place and was going to die for his sin. The lamb would then be slain before the Lord. The priest would cut an artery in the neck of the sheep in order to produce a quick death. And as his hands are on the head of that sheep, 
the blood begins, the warmth of the blood begins to flow out of the lamb. The legs ultimately begin to buckle and it collapses in death right there in the presence of the guilty uh, party. And so the lamb would, would die there right before your eyes and no one with any kind of a conscience at all could ever watch that and not be impacted by the awfulness of their sin. That my sin brought death to an innocent party. And the blood of the Lamb would then be applied to the four, uh, the horns of the altar by hand in order to ceremonially cleanse it. The remaining blood would be caught in a bowl. It would be poured out at the base of the altar. The fat of the Lamb, very significantly, would be removed from the Lamb, placed upon the altar, which would have a flame on it, and the fat of that Lamb would then be burned up and and the aroma then would rise up as the smoke would rise up as a picture of prayer and the heart of the worshiper being raised up to the Lord. It wasn't a mindless ritual that they were involved in. As that fat would be burned upon the altar and the, and the smell of it would rise up toward the Lord, all of it symbolizing that it was a way in which the guilty part, uh, party in all of it was speaking to the Lord of his desire to be forgiven of his sin, of his thankfulness that God had provided a way for his sin to be covered. And that was the sin offering. And all of it was a picture of the Messiah who would come into the world, Jesus who the Bible describes as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Bible says that Jesus is the satisfying payment. He is the satisfying sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible says that He Himself is the propitiation. Propitiation means satisfying payment. He is the propitiation for our sins And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And when you see in your mind's eye Jesus hanging on that cross 2,000 years ago, you don't see just one set of hands uh, laid uh, upon him as with that lamb under the old covenant. You see the hands of every single person in the whole wide world. He bore all of our sins upon the cross. You see the hands of every single human being that's ever lived in all of human history, all of those hands placed upon Him. And He bore the sins of us all, the Bible teaches. Paul, writing to the Corinthians again, declared, For He that is the Father made Him that is Jesus, who knew no sin, perfectly innocent, who knew no sin to become sin, to bear our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's also interesting to realize that from the time of the giving of the law of Moses until the time of the crucifixion of Jesus was a period of 1,500 years. And so for 1,500 years, God used this sin offering in order to drive home the twin concepts of transference and substitution associated 
with the forgiveness of sin. And every time the sin offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent substitution. That my forgiveness, my salvation has occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to someone else. Transference. And so for 1,500 years, the Lord had driven home the point, I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. So that when Jesus came on the scene in human history as their Messiah, declaring that the cleansing of sin would occur on the basis of substitution, Him dying in our place, and on the basis of transference, in other words, it happens through faith, that they should not have acted as if some f- this was some foreign concept. They had been living it out for 1,500 years God had been preparing them for 1,500 years. Isaiah had prophesied of it. Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he, speaking of Messiah, of Jesus, 740 years before he was born, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Transference. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And John the Baptist understood it. When he saw Jesus and he spoke John the Baptist to his own disciples and pointed them to Jesus to follow him, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was John saying of Jesus? That Jesus is the one who is going to die for our sins in our place, substitution, the sin of the whole world is going to be transferred to him. And that whole ceremony of the sin offering in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, would have produced this very profound sense of horror. You would have watched that occur before your eyes, and there would have been this sense of something seems to have gone terribly wrong here, something appears to be very backward here, and it was intended to do that. And as they stood before the tabernacle, here is this living young lamb standing there, 
breathing, innocent, all in one piece. And yet in a matter of moments before their eyes, it is slain, it is bled, it is gutted, and it is cut into pieces until it no longer resembles a sheep at all, and all because of their sin. And yet they get to continue to live. How is it that that lamb dies, but I get to continue to live? And all of it is a faint, a very faint shadow of Calvary, a preparation for Calvary, where Jesus hung on the cross for my sin. And at the beginning of that day, on the day of his crucifixion, there he was in the early morning hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, breathing, healthy, whole, innocent, But in a matter of three hours, he'll be hanging on a Roman cross, his face so savage that he's unrecognizable for who he is. His entire body from head to toe to toe is reduced to one great open bleeding wound. And in the words of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah chapter 52, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man speaking of his face and his form more than the sons of men speaking of his body. And when you look at him and you realize that it was not merely a man on that cross, that would make it horrible enough. But that it is the very Son of God, you look at the cross of Calvary, and with this awesome wonder we ask ourselves, How is it that he dies and I get to live? And all of it was intended to communicate to mankind, both through the sin offering in the Old Testament and through the crucifixion of Jesus. It was meant to horrify. It was meant to horrify people in order to gain people's attention. And then having gotten our attention, it was meant to teach us something, and that something is the seriousness of sin. And like a great blinking neon light on the highway of human history, Jesus' death upon the cross communicates the seriousness of sin. People reject it today. They talk of the religion of the Bible as that bloody religion, those sacrifices of the Old Testament, and then the crucifixion of Jesus in the New Testament. And here we are. We're so smart. We're so much smarter than God. We're so sophisticated. The world's on fire all around us as an indictment against our lack of wisdom and our lack of morality. But we know better than God. We will reject the blood of his religion, the blood of the Old Testament, the blood of the New Testament. But I ask you, are there any reminders of the seriousness of sin left in our culture? What is there left in this culture to horrify mankind concerning the seriousness of sin? to convey that message, to wake up a sleeping population to the danger of sin and the necessity of the forgiveness of sin.
And are we any better off as a culture or a nation because we've removed all of these reminders of the seriousness of sin? Now, God knows that in the fallenness of this world and in the strength of our own broken, fallen, dark nature, we need a reminder of the seriousness of sin that is stronger than the pull of this world and our flesh toward it. And those sacrifices provided it and provided something necessary in our lives. And those sacrifices gave the reminder of the holiness of God. They communicate that I cannot as a sinner just casually approach God on my own terms. That there's a great infinite holy gulf between a sinful human being and the God of heaven. And there needs to be that that our sins cannot be ignored. They must be addressed, and they must be addressed God's way. And then finally, these sacrifices communicated, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. I think it's amazing to realize. And the writer brings it out in kind of a... A, a certain angle in verse 25, but it's amazing to realize that not one of all of those sheep that were sacrificed under the old covenant did so willingly. But when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came, he laid his life down willingly. Jesus said, No man takes my life, I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Why was a death required in order to provide us with a covering for sin in the Old Testament and the full forgiveness of sin in the New Testament? It's because God faced a very significant dilemma or problem in His desire to save sinners. And the problem is this, that the righteousness or the right-onness or the rightness that is required by heaven is perfection. In the words of an old Puritan, he put it perfectly in my estimation, he said, the righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to Require. Somebody might say, can you help me with a translation? I'll try to. Translation is, he cannot lower that standard of perfection, or he would not and could not be a righteous God. And the problem is that God declares each of us as guilty of sin, each of us has been less than perfect, Each of us has broken God's laws, and thus we have disqualified ourselves from ever getting into heaven based upon our own good works or our own life or human effort. Romans chapter 3, for it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In the same chapter, for all have sinned, and what is the consequence of it? And fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible teaches, and people don't get this, but we need to get this, 
The Bible teaches that there is a penalty that must be paid for our sin. This universe is not man's universe. This is God's universe. This world that we live in, I mean, we're so arrogant. We believe this world is ours. This world is not man's world. It belongs to the Creator. This world belongs to God. And just as there are penalties for breaking the law in a city or a state or a nation, there's a penalty in this universe for breaking God's law. And just as those who break God's law, man's laws are punished for their crimes, so too there's a punishment for those who break God's laws because God is perfectly holy and just and every violation of His law, we call it sin, it must be punished. And if He did not punish those who break His laws, if He just casually overlooked and tolerated sin and accepted sin, then He would not be holy and He certainly would not be just. You don't want to live in a city. You don't want to live in a nation that, number one, doesn't have laws. And number two, does not enforce those laws. And what is true of a city or a state or a nation is true of the universe. God has laws, He enforces them, and He wouldn't be just or loving or holy if He didn't. Sin has ruined the world. He is not going to allow it to ruin heaven. The solution to the dilemma for God. How does he remain holy? How does he remain righteous? How does he remain absolutely just? And at the same time, save sinful man. And the solution to the dilemma, and there is only one solution, he was able to do it through the death of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. Because it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness to be put to our account, giving us the perfect righteousness that qualifies us for heaven, and yet at the same time not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of sin. No one can look at that bloodied and wounded Jesus upon that cross from head to toe and ever come to the conclusion that in saving sinful man, that God has overlooked the seriousness of sin. It is that perfect combination. God remains just and continues to communicate the seriousness of sin and is in saving man, and it can only occur through the sacrifice of Jesus. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, by providing salvation through Jesus' death upon the cross, only that way allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners, and again, remain just in doing so. That raises the question, why so much blood? Then raises the question of why did he willingly give his life for us? 
Why would he do that? Would you have died for you <laughs> in your sinful state? And yet the Son of God dies for us, not when we're saved and halfway cleaned up, but when we are at our very, very worst. Why would he do it? And he did it because of his love for us. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You take all of the physical suffering that he bore on that cross, take all of the shame, take all of the mental suffering, take all of the blasphemies, take all that the devil was bringing against him in one last desperate attempt to break him upon the cross to be disobedient to the Father's will for his life, Take the weight of every single one of the sins of all of human history, not upon me or upon you. That would be sin coming into contact with sin, but this is sin coming into contact with one who's never known sin. And you take the aloneness of the cross where Jesus' disciples have all abandoned him and even the Father has been forced to for a time where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you take and you roll all of that together, put it all together in a great heap, and then to realize that his love for each one of us was greater still. We used to have a poster at the old church down on 10th and F that you would see as you would enter into the church at the entrance. And it had a saying on it, and it said, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross or held him to the cross, but his love for you and for me. And it's true. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? As Jesus hung on that cross, 12 legions of angels... And it only would have taken one, just one angel. Twelve legions of angels in that heavenly scene watched that scene that was going on on the earth, and all they were waiting for was one word from his mouth to bring an end to the disgrace and the shame of that scene. And it never came from his mouth. And you know why it never came? Because of his love for you and his love for me personally. He loves us. And he loves our souls. And he wants us saved. And he wants us forgiven. And he knew that the only way that people like you and I in October 2012 on planet Earth would know these priceless things would be by him dying that death out of a love for us. Think about that word love, the love of God for us and for our souls. The world that we live in is not the world I grew up in. I'm not going to go off on a tangent on that. But it isn't. It's better in some ways. It's worse 
in a lot of other ways. And it's worse in the ways, in my estimation, that are the most important and most meaningful in life. And I look at the world that we live in, the country that we live in, and the price that individual people are paying for the departure from God's Word and obedience to God's Word and having God's Word be the standard for good and bad and right and wrong in our culture. And the casualties are high. They're heaped up in piles as high as any mountain in the whole world. I think about how many people reach adult life today without the confidence that a single person loves them, really loves them. Oh, they said they loved me until they got this from me and then it was gone. I don't think that's real love. But I wasn't disillusioned at first. I tried love one more time and then the same thing happened. Only he or she stripped me of something the first one hadn't. But I still hadn't given up on it. I tried a third and a fourth and a fifth and pretty soon you don't even hope to believe that there is this thing called love in life, much less that there is a God who would love us, not for what he can strip away from us, but love us for who and what we are at our worst. And the God of the Bible is that God. And the Savior on that cross is that Savior. He loves us. See, I need proof of it to trust again. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He already paid the ultimate sacrifice to demonstrate the love. He loves you. He wants you to know and experience forgiveness. He wants you to know and experience a real relationship with Him in this life and one that will continue all the way through the life to come. And so this morning we celebrate God's answer to two great questions, two great why questions in life. Why so much blood? For without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Jesus' death on our behalf provides us with the only way that sins can be forgiven. And then why in the world would he do it? And heaven's answer is love. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, you see, I thought we had took the Lord's Supper Two weeks ago. We did. You're not having a flashback of any kind, religious or otherwise. <laughs> See, we don't do the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings two times in two years. I'll come two times in three weeks. Well, if the writer of the book of Hebrews keeps putting forth our Savior... And this kind of a way, we might have the Lord's Supper every Sunday all the way to the end of the book. With a passage like this, themes like this, 
the truth of this concerning the cross. It requires a time to just stop and allow all of it to sink in and to express with fresh appreciation to the Lord how he has thought of everything related to our need. And then to love him back because we love him because he first loved us. And so this morning as we partake of the symbol of his body and of his blood, it's to just once again say, thank you, Lord, for finding a way to save me. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you were willing to pay in order for me to enjoy the quality, the meaning, the purpose, the second chances in life that you know I desperately need. And so we want to worship him and praise him today. The men will be up in just a moment, but as the elements are passed, please hold the cracker first and then hold the bread, and we'll pray together for it and, and partake together and then pray together related to the cup and partake together as well. But I'd like